Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, senior minister here at Westminster and moderator of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. The theme of the Town Hall Forum today is, as always, voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. The mass suicide of, by members of Heaven's Gate, the growth of megachurches in American cities and all across the land, the development of Islam as a major religious presence in America, the rise of religious conservatism as a political force in America, are some of the stories that have been covered by today's speaker, Mr. Gustav Niebuhr. Mr. Niebuhr is the senior writer, religion writer at the New York Times, responsible for reporting on major trends in religion, as well as news-breaking stories throughout the United States. Prior to joining the New York Times in 1994, Mr. Niebuhr covered religion for the Washington Post from 1992 to 1994, the Wall Street Journal from 1989 to 1982, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution from 1986 to 1989. In 1994, Mr. Niebuhr received the top prizes of the Religion News Writers Association, the Templeton Religion Reporter of the Year Award, and the Supple Memorial Award. He is a graduate of the University College, Oxford University, England, and Pomona College, Claremont, California. Next term in the uh, academic year, Mr. Niebuhr will be a lecturer at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, teaching a course in religion and mass media. His topic today is Facing the New Millennium, the year 2000. Will you please join me in welcoming Mr. Gustav Niebuhr to the Town Hall Forum. Well, thank you, and thank you so much for that introduction. It's uh, a pleasure to be here, and I do look forward to your questions later. And I must say it's a privilege to be able to speak about the coming millennium, if only because, as I think we all recognize, these 1,000-year intervals come around so infrequently. <laughs> as I stand here, I find myself wondering a bit uh, when the present millennium dawned 997 years ago, how many homilies were preached about its cosmic significance. Uh, surely that preaching took place in sanctuaries far less comfortable than this one. Well, as you've heard in the introduction, I write about religion in America as a news story. And that is work that's taken me from the churches and synagogues and mosques of the mainstream to all sorts of esoteric houses of religion across the country from mass gatherings like the uh, crowds that surround Pope John Paul II on his travels, to any number of conversations with individuals who are dealing in one way or another with questions of ultimate meaning. Because religion in both its, uh, its organized and its unorganized forms continues to be so important to this nation, I think it's a very useful lens through which to look at our society and try to discern 
the trends, social, cultural, and even technological, that are shaping public life as we enter the 21st century. And I would say, too, that this is a particularly important time to look at religion in the United States, because now in the 1990s, a broad interest in matters spiritual is running at high tide. I have called this a benign form of millennialism, an awareness that we are coming to the end of a particular period, if only a chronological one. And I'll go into detail about this trend shortly. Well, spirituality is amorphous. So an obvious question is, how do you measure or quantify the religiosity of Americans at the 20th century's end? Well, here we're helped by national poll figures, the results of surveys by Gallup and other organizations. Here's a key one. There's a finding that's often repeated because it's measured from year to year that about 19 out of every 20 people in the United States claim to believe in God. 19 out of 20. Now if that sounds to you like a high figure, it is. Particularly when you put the United States up against other developed countries. It puts us in the same league as, for example, Ireland and maybe Poland, way above Britain and France and Germany. There are other indicators, too, other findings. Large majorities of people claim to pray daily. Large majorities believe in an afterlife. And two of every five people say they attend church or synagogue on a regular basis, a result that has been largely unchanged for nearly 60 years, except for a temporary increase in the 1950s, which was an unusual decade in many ways. My, per my personal favorite among these statistics comes from a nationwide survey published in the New York Times last year in which 60% of those responding said that they offered a grace at mealtimes. Now that's the exact same percentage as answered that question affirmatively in a similar survey in 1967. But what you have here is a basic and so far enduring level of personal belief and behavior that coexists with a larger secular culture. Now these statistics, of course, do not say anything about the depths of people's beliefs and understanding. And they don't say how varied people are in terms of their religious outlook. When people say they believe in God, well, that can mean many different things but at least they provide some context for the present, and as I say, the present public interest in spirituality. So what are the signs of the times? What is this benign millennialism that I referred to earlier? A good place to look is outside the walls of uh, church and synagogues, because it's, it's outside religious institutions that a lot of religious and spiritual ferment takes place in the United States and always has. One place to look is your general bookstore and on the bestseller list to see what it is that people are buying and reading. And here for the last half dozen years, we have seen a flood tide of spiritually themed books, a number of which became bestsellers. First on angels. Remember all those books and calendars and notepads on angels in the early 1990s? 
more recently on God, perhaps an obvious subject, than on the soul and other related topics. And by the way, the place to find these, if you go looking, is not in the religion section of these bookstores, which tends to be confined to Bibles, but in the ever-growing section known variously as spirituality, self-help, or recovery, these seem to be the more acceptable terms these days for where you can find literature on the inner life. Why is this happening? To a degree, I think that the culture is changing in a way that reflects the loss of an overarching issue that so dominated our lives for a long time, and that is the end of the Cold War and the relaxation of international tensions. It does give people an opportunity to be more introspective, to turn more within, to ask questions that are not necessarily life or death matters in an international sense. Another sign of the time is the religious mass meeting. The Reverend Billy Graham still draws big crowds, as do a number of other lesser known uh, evangelists. But certainly one of the biggest gatherings of our decade was the Million Man March, a multifaceted event inspired by the Nation of Islam leader, Minister Louis Farrakhan, which certainly did have a spiritual theme in its embrace of the idea of personal atonement. Within a week or 10 days, another religious mass gathering with a similar theme will take place in the same location, the Washington Mall, this one sponsored by the evangelical men's movement, the Promise Keepers. Now, for those of you who may not have heard of it, the Promise Keepers is a quite fascinating, intriguing movement, controversial too, in that it is reserved to men. The organization was founded by a former college football coach to instill religious conviction, personal morality, and familial responsibility in men. And since 1992, they've been holding two-day gatherings in sports stadiums across the country, which feature lots of hymn singing, preaching, male bonding. Uh, they have been here, I understand, in Minneapolis on at least three occasions in the Metrodome. Well, it does feel like equal parts revival, pep rally, support group with men hugging and declaring their friendship one for another. I reported on one a couple of years ago in Florida. 50,000 men in an enclosed indoor stadium. At one point, all of them cheering at the tops of their lungs for Jesus. It was a unique experience. I'd never seen anything like it. By Promise Keepers statistics, they have drawn 2.6 million men to these stadium events, which represents about 1% of the population, maybe 2% of the American population. Still, in focusing on events like this, the mass meeting, I don't mean to overlook what I think is a more gradual and truly profound social change which is influencing our culture and our religious culture at the end of this century, and that is the rise of women to positions of authority, especially spiritual authority, which until very recently was a dimension reserved largely to men, at least in the sense of its formal offices. The 1990s are a decade in which we see women as senior ministers in some Protestant denominations, 
as senior rabbis in some branches of Judaism and in a few places as bishops, again, within some Protestant denominations. Of course, this development is controversial within the broad sphere of organized religion, where the question of whether women should be allowed these spiritual offices acts as a great dividing line, splitting different faith groups one from the other. Within the Roman Catholic Church, of course, Pope John Paul II has said that the idea of women as priests is closed to discussion. But the broader issue of the rise of women in our culture is more than uh, just a matter of office and status, but it is also, it has a symbolic impact in another area, and that is the issue of language. If a current trend carries over into the next century, and I don't see why not, there's going to be an ongoing debate about the words people use to express themselves in the sacred realm. That is, when they pray, when they sing hymns, when they read scripture. What do I mean, all right? Let me put it in the form of a couple of questions. What do you visualize when you hear the word men or the word brethren? At one time, these were unremarkable synonyms for people, and for many, they still are. But to others, these words sound dated, at least in that sense. And committees are at work and have been at work uh, within Christian and Jewish denominations, revising sacred texts to find new language. The word is inclusive language. And for many people, too, the issue doesn't stop there, but continues to language about God. If one believes that the deity is beyond gender and that men and women alike are made in the divine image, then should there be an effort to remove or to mute or to somehow balance male pronouns and male references to God, like, for example, the word king, which does raise questions about that old Protestant hymn, Lead on, O King Eternal. Well, changes like these are being made in places in texts, and they do raise a great deal of controversy. People do get upset, and I don't see that necessarily changing, but this will be an ongoing process. It makes me think that a few years ago, in one church, and I do visit a lot of churches, as you can imagine, where the minister offered a prayer in the name of God our Father, God our Mother, Afterwards, an older woman came up to me, looked me in the eye, and said, I did not care for that one bit. <laughs> in other words, that was closed to discussion as far, we, as far as she was concerned. It makes one wonder, too, what happens to our images, our familiar images, because language does challenge that, of course. And one can't help but think, when this subject comes up, well, what about something we all grew up with? That great painting by Michelangelo on the wall of the Sistine Chapel of God as a gray-bearded giant surrounded by angels floating on a cloud to impart through his extended finger the gift of humanity to Adam. It's an image that now sits on one side of a cultural divide. Well, it's been years since I've been in the Sistine Chapel, unfortunately. But when I think of religious art, another image comes to mind, and that has much to do with another challenge that 
we as Americans face in the next century. I recently took a tour of a Hindu temple in New York City, an elaborate and ornate building that looked as if it had been brought over whole and intact from southern India. The temple president, a woman by the way, took me round showing me the various idols of the major Hindu deities, male and female, and telling me too that the temple had hosted church and synagogue and college groups as a way of attempting to inform people about Hinduism. Well, the point is that place is not unique in America, not by a long shot. In fact, Hindu temples can be found in almost all regions of the country. And they're but one aspect of a growing pluralism that mark and will mark our religious landscape in the 21st century, the result of changes in immigration laws in the 1960s that have allowed a great many professional middle-class people from outside of Europe, particularly from Asia, to emigrate to this country. These days, no major American city is without its Islamic center, the mosque where local Muslim populations can meet and pray. Buddhist temples are easy to find, and you might certainly know that from reading all the recent news coverage about the campaign financing issues that have been studied in Congress. There is one temple that has featured again and again in references to a Democratic fundraiser in uh, Los Angeles. Um, although the United States has long been home to the adherence of religions other than Christianity and Judaism, they are, those religions that is, are becoming much more visible and significant now and they will continue to do so. Their presence raises a challenge on the one hand to established Christian and Jewish organizations in terms of how to incorporate the members of other faiths in responding to basic social problems like poverty and homelessness in cities, also to dealing um, as religious organizations with governmental entities in questions of church and state. These groups also pose a challenge to, to educational and healthcare institutions. Public schools and hospitals will have to learn how to accommodate people of different faiths and traditions with whom they have seldom probably dealt before. How visible are minority religious groups? Well, they're becoming more and more so. Two days ago, up here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, a man told me of a large Buddhist temple being erected next door to the Lutheran school at which his children attend. Presumably, someday the religious authorities in the school and in the temple next door will get together and have a conversation. I'm sure it will be quite interesting and see what, see what they share and see what they don't. By the way, I first encountered that Hindu temple that I was referring to on the internet. I took a virtual tour before I went there in the flesh, which leads me to say that cyberspace at century's end and into the 21st century has become an immense meeting ground for many faiths. It's a sort of a and it's, it's got the, it's got, certainly has the potential to expand in that way. But many thousands of organizations are available for your visit and your study simply at the click of a mouse. 
It's a frontier certain to encourage, I think, an awareness of our diversity. And it's clearly a tool for religious organizations to reach out, to spread word of themselves, and even to recruit. When you look at some of these uh, home pages, the different religious websites, they're often invitations to come visit, and sometimes invitations to convert. They will give you the details on what you have to do to convert. It's fascinating in that sense. It was on the internet, too, that a New York Times researcher and I came across a site that certainly pointed to the dark side of the coming millennium. It was at midnight on the Wednesday before last Easter. We were both in the newsroom after police in a San Diego suburb announced the discovery of a mass suicide out there. There was just enough information coming across the news reports at that time to jog something in my memory which allowed us to put together some keywords and do a web search. And what came up on our screen was a site emblazoned with the flashing words red alert and a message about the approach of the comet hail bump. The website, of course, belonged to Heaven's Gate. And posted there were documents of their peculiar theology which detailed a belief that the world was certainly doomed and all human civilization with it. Survival lay in a rendezvous with a flying saucer piloted by beings of a superior intelligence. What was remarkable was that the group had held together so long. They had been formed 22 years ago when their leader and his companion undertook a recruiting tour of college campuses and town halls on the West Coast talking about a UFO encounter for those who were spiritually prepared. Within a few months, that couple had dozens of followers. They went underground and were seldom heard from again until March. The expectation that the world will end is, of course, not new. The year 1000 was ushered in amidst predictions, I'm told by historians, of floods, famines, and flying dragons. But those apocalyptic expectations do seem to strike a particular chord with some people in times like these, which are filled with social and cultural change and great uncertainty. One of the tragic things about Heaven's Gate was it was not the first violence among millennialist groups in the 1990s. It followed very closely on other mass suicides, particularly by, I'm thinking of a group called the Order of the Solar Temple, many of whose members committed suicide in Canada and Europe in 1994 and 1995. Nor is this apocalypticism confined to religious belief. You don't have to search to find people who are deeply concerned about daunting environmental problems like global warming and wondering whether those perhaps spell some sort of planetary doom. Well, there are different ways, of course, to face the millennium, and one of them is with foreboding and with anxiety. But one can also regard some of the trends that I have mentioned here as making for an exciting time, certainly a challenging one for those with a constructive view of society. 
In conclusion, let me say the year 2001 will represent a turning point and that it will stand at least as a chronological beginning. And in that sense, perhaps will be an inspiration to people to look ahead rather than thinking of endings. And in that case, who knows what creative energies it will unleash. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Niebuhr. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker is senior religion writer at the New York Times, Gustav Niebuhr. Today's program is co-sponsored by Luther Theological Seminary. While the ushers collect the questions from the audience here in the sanctuary, those of you who are unable to uh, stay for the question and answer period should feel free to leave. And uh, those of you who are listening in on the radio may call in a question by calling 332-3421. 332-3421. Mr. Niebuhr, if I can ask you to please uh, return to the podium so that we may begin the questions and answers. Is there a, uh, a social basis in American society for the more, um, what most of us would consider bizarre or um, apocalyptic uh, forms of uh, religious uh, community and expression? Well, that's a good question. And I, as I said earlier, we, we live in a time of real change, of social and cultural change, and I think a great deal of anxiety. Uh, you can think of the, uh, think of the things that are, uh, uh, they almost sound like cliches that are that are talked about by politicians and commentators get reflected in the media about the condition of American society. You start with the, de the, uh, the idea of a decline in civility and moral standards, the idea that educational standards are falling. Uh, there's a, there is a sense that, that, that the family, too, is in decline. There's, a, there's sort of a broad pessimism out there that I can't help but think lends itself to a, uh, to a certain uh, a certain, well, it, it, it creates fertile ground for a certain kind of apocalyptic thinking, at least among a minority of people. And then, too, of course, there is the, uh, the sense of a chronological countdown toward the year uh, 2000, and the sense in the mind of some people that, uh, that a date like that must have some significance. I mean, as I say, it is a, it is a very rare thing that we see three zeros on the chronological odometer. Is increased interest in religion as the millennium approaches on the macro level equivalent to deathbed conversions on the micro level? Do you, um, do you expect this interest to diminish once the millennium passes, that is, the patient recovers? <laughs> uh, what a very nicely put question. Uh, <laughs> and uh, That was one of the 20 that didn't believe in God, I think. Yeah. Well, and it's a good question. It's a, it's, a, it's a question that involves looking around the corner. Now, of course, that, that is indeed possible. I think that there are people out there who are, who are pushing uh, uh, a greater religiosity and hoping that it will carry over, that what, 
that what you're getting now will flow back into the institutions and, uh, and inspire them and, and sort of and create a, uh, a very public religious component in, uh, in, in, uh, in American life. But it is possible, too, of course, that the pressure will be off. Uh, but it, I, I think what will be interesting is to see how people psychologically view being in a new century and in a new millennium. I think there is something to the idea of beginning again. We're at the start of something, all right? Is this a time to build, to create? And, uh, and in the case of people who do have uh, a, a religious or a spiritual orientation, what will that, uh, what will that cause them to do? Will they uh, uh, be uh, inclined to sort of carry their movements forward, whether they be denominations or individual churches or temples? I think this is going to be something we really need to watch there may be this burst of energy. In that regard, in, in view of the, the apparent growth of non-traditional religions, what do you see as the future of so-called mainline Christian church bodies in the United States? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think there's been a good deal of pessimism, particularly about the future of mainline Protestant churches, such as the Presbyterian Church, the, uh, the Episcopal Church, the Methodist Church. I do think that's overstated, though. I think that these churches have a, a very important role and will have a very important role to play in American society. Uh, I just don't think that it will be the dominant place that uh, mainline Protestant churches held within the, uh, the memory of so many of us, that is, within the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, when they really were the, the institutions that, that guided and shaped religious life in this country. I think now uh, the United States is, is emerging as a much more pluralistic uh, country in which uh, different traditions, mainly Christian traditions, uh, are, are going to have an important voice. If you look at what the polls say now, and I am thinking in particular of uh, the New York Times, the survey the New York Times published last year, you had three quarters of the American public identifying themselves in equal groups, that is one quarter apiece, with the mainline Protestant churches, with the Roman Catholic Church, and with the evangelical churches. And so neither of these three, none of these three is dominant, and, uh, but they all remain influential traditions, along with the branches of Judaism, along with the emerging Muslim presence, and eventually, I should think, uh, the other Asian uh, traditions. What do you see as the causes of the growth of um, large, usually conservative churches, as opposed to smaller congregations where where people know one another and uh, have community and break bread uh, together in, in community? Well, if that's a reference to some of the, uh, the larger uh, so-called megachurches, which do tend to be conservative uh, theologically, I think two things may be at work. Uh, some of these larger churches are very creative and also very diverse in their out 
and their outreach to people. I have been in any number of these so-called megachurches, and for those who are not familiar with that, uh, that term, they te that tends to refer to churches that draw at least 2,000 people a week in attendance, not membership, attendance. And uh, many of them are newer creations. They're located in the suburbs. They're located near interstate exits. And they tend to cater to, uh, to what people in suburban situations are looking for. There'd be a vast array of possibilities in terms of children's religious education, lots of volunteer activities for adults, lots of meeting places for adults of all ages, particularly single adults, lots of sermons geared toward very practical issues rather than more traditional theological reflection, such as what does the Bible say about your personal finances? What does the Bible say about how to sustain your marriage? As I say, very practical approaches in that way. There's also a lot of music. There may be drama, little dramatic skits as part of the service. You know, all the bells and whistles. These are pretty uh, impressive places in that sense. And some of them uh, even have health clubs, in-house cinemas, bowling alleys. I mean, it's uh, kind of almost like a religious mall. <laughs> but they're very successful, too, at, at that. And, and they draw people in for that way. But there are other, of course, conservative churches without the bells and whistles. But what they do have is a, uh, they are oriented toward a, a sort of a, a biblical teaching that, uh, that very much emphasizes answers to specific questions. That is, how to apply the Bible specifically to issues in your life, and that does prove very attractive to a good many people, uh, particularly people who are looking uh, for you know, specific guidance. That's, that's one reason uh, for, their, uh, for their growth. I'm sure that the pastors of those churches could could name other reasons as well. The millennium, uh, the year 2000, exists only in some societies. There are other calendars which have years quite different. So in the absolute, does the year 2000 really mean much? Ah. That's a very good and discerning question. Does the year 2000 mean much? Well, what's the year 2000 based on? It's based on the idea that it marks 2,000 years since the uh, birth of Jesus. but. The, uh, in fact, uh, biblical scholars in their research have long held that uh, the calendar, when it was composed uh, in, within that first millennium, was slightly skewed and that Jesus was, in fact, born sometime between what we would call 4 B.C. and 6 B.C. So by that token, we've actually already passed uh, the, <laughs> the millennium. We're into the third millennium. But it's a it's a, a, a question. It's the year 2000 is is a symbolic date, and it's something that uh, people can make of uh, pretty much what they want. But these years uh, symbols are extremely important. They're important in our culture. They're important in all cultures. Symbols of one sort or another, whether religious or secular, are unavoidable, and they're usually times uh, these numeric symbols when people sort of stop and take stock when they reflect. Think about the time when you turn 30 or the time when you turn 40 
or for some of you, the time when you turned 50. It really did seem, uh, for all the perhaps the most tough-minded of you, a milestone. Uh, I know it did for me, that is 40, I should say, not 50 yet, and 50 will, I'm sure, but a time to sort of to do a lot of thinking. It, it's this time that sort of seems to set one, set one apart, and the year 2000 does that even more so. In a recent lecture, Carol Bly, a Minnesota author, said that religion, and most particularly Christianity, can only be successful in times of crisis in society. Please comment. Well, that's an interesting idea. Uh, I'm not sure I would agree with it, though. I mean, look at, uh, at Christianity seems to have been quite successful, at least in terms of numbers, in the United States. There's an estimated 350,000 churches in this country, and uh, that would be some sort of measure of success. Also, the fact that, uh, that most people uh, in the United States do identify with uh, uh, a Christian faith in one way or another. And it could be argued, too, that uh, it's been, the United States has been a, for most of its history, uh, a rather comfortable and, and optimistic place for many people. Now, not all. Not, I, I don't mean to be so blind as to the, uh, I don't mean to be blind to the, the sufferings and travails of, of many people, particularly uh, many uh, ethnic groups in this country, but Christianity has done well in, in America, and uh, we have been fortunate not to, uh, not to suffer uh, the kind of wars and devastation and, uh, uh, and, and cruel governments that so many people in other parts of the world have. That said, though, Christianity has done very well in times of, of crisis. I mean, you, you think about uh, Christian persecution uh, during the Roman Empire. Uh, Christianity has seemed to do well in, in some parts of the world where Christ, Christians have been oppressed. Uh, Eastern Europe being a case in point under communism. Uh, the church has endured. But it's not universally true. In some places where churches have been oppressed, they have not endured. They've been weakened terribly. So it's difficult to, uh, I think it's, it's difficult to make a blanket statement in one way or another uh, in response to that question. Please speak to the new clampdown on, religious, uh, on religion in Russia and establishing Russian Orthodoxy as the national religion as reported in today's Star Tribune. Well, that, that's, an, a, that's a developing story. Uh, and it certainly makes me wish that uh, at some point, uh, well, makes me want to go over there to take a look at it more closely. I think that there's a, uh, from my understanding of the situation, uh, Russia is a place where the church was, that is the Orthodox Church and all churches, uh, clamped down on and endured some very hard times, uh, uh, not, and not just Christian groups, Jewish groups and Islamic groups too, under communism. Well, communism collapses, and what happens? It's a chance for the traditional uh, religious groups to reassert themselves, yet at the same time, it's, uh, it's been an open door for other groups. Russia has become a mission field, uh, and not just for uh, Christians and Jews and Muslims from outside the former Soviet Union, but for many other groups as, as well, and that has alarmed 
I think it's particularly alarmed the Russian Orthodox Church, which does have a lot of, uh, uh, well, a certain amount of political power. And it's, I think it's been from the ins insecurity and the, and, the, and the worry of the, uh, the Russian Orthodox uh, Church that, uh, that the politicians in Russia have moved to try to establish some order. Now, it's not the kind of order that, that uh, we would agree with in a, in a society which so values the religious freedoms of the First Amendment. Instead, what you've got is a, uh, is a new religious law, which, as I understand it, uh, gives preference to the uh, religious bodies, religious faiths that existed in Russia that were officially recognized under communism, and that would be the Russian Orthodox Church, Judaism, Islam, and Buddhism. And that does leave out a number of groups, inc including groups with long histories in Russia, such as the Roman Catholic Church. It's a very complex and evolving situation, and as you know, if you've read those stories, it's, ones in which, it's one in which Western governments, particularly the United States, have expressed their deep concern about uh, measures like this one, and will continue to do so. Of course, that runs, runs up against uh, a, a feeling among the leaders of Russia that, hey, this is our business, it's not your business. Would you please comment on the failure of the uh, uh, Lutherans to adopt the Concordat with the Episcopalians and its significance for ecumenism? Since we're co-sponsored here today by Luther Theological Seminary, would you please comment? We might have framed that question a little bit differently, David. If, uh, would you? I guess I could uh, ask how many people the were... The decision. <laughs> thank you. We're aware of the, uh, uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America's church-wide assembly uh, last month, it took place in, uh, in Philadelphia, and the two major issues before it were, would the Lutheran Church enter into what's called full communion uh, with, on the one hand, three churches in the Reformed Protestant tradition, which include the Presbyterian Church USA, and on the other hand, with the Episcopal Church. And full communion, uh, means, among other things, it's, it's certainly a, uh, a major step in, in the direction of, uh, of ecumenism, but it, it would mean, perhaps in the most practical terms, that, uh, that there could be a sharing of clergy in some situations, that churches of different denominations, Lutheran Church and churches of other denominations, could share a clergy person, particularly in the case of two or more small congregations that were too small, too poor, to afford someone full-time. It would keep those congregations going. But there were many issues uh, in these agreements that were problematical for some people, questions of theology between the Lutherans and the Reformed churches, and also questions of church orders and the authority of bishops between the Lutherans and the Episcopalians what happened was a split decision. The, uh, the agreement with the Reformed churches passed and was adopted. The concordat with the Episcopalians did not reach the two-thirds margin that it should have, um, should have, excuse me, according to the uh, supporters, that it needed, I should say. I don't mean to take an opinion on that. <laughs> it fell out of 1,050 votes cast, the concordat fell 
six votes short. It wound up at 65 point something percent and went down to defeat. You had a split vote on ecumenical ties by the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. What does it mean for the future of ecumenism? I guess what it means is now what uh, leaders of the Lutheran Church will make of it. And there was a great deal of soul searching that followed that vote. Gosh, shouldn't we come back at this, look at the Concordat again, perhaps find some way to answer the concerns of Lutherans about the role of bishop, about the authority of bishop, about the theological position of bishop within the Episcopal Church, which we would be entering into full communion with. And at this point, there is a move to, to study that issue again and perhaps to bring it back at the next churchwide assembly. Uh, in 1999, of course, the question there remains with uh, the Episcopalians. What will they do with it? Uh, many were shocked and startled because it was not a point of controversy among Episcopalians. They had endorsed the Concordat by something like 95% at their uh, denominational convention in July. It really depends on how people are going to read a mixed decision. How do you interpret a mixed verdict? And there, really, it's, it's, in, the, uh, it's in the eye of the beholder. One of the radio listeners called in this question, discuss the differences, please, between religiosity and spirituality. Well, <laughs> it's a good question. It really is a good question. Well, perhaps we could look at it this way. Religiosity uh, may be, I mean, this, this would be a convenient way, uh, but this may be simply my definition. Uh, religiosity may be a way of expressing oneself within formal, uh, traditional uh, religious bounds. That is, does one go to church? Uh, does one go to one of the established churches? Does one pray uh, within the context of, of that church's tradition, follow the, the creeds? Is one aware of the denominational uh, connection? Is one, that is, is one more affiliated with an institution? I think that may be a fair uh, uh, definition of religiosity and perhaps a more precise one than I, I used in my, uh, in my speech. As for spirituality, that is really what you make it, and it is a free market in America now. You can draw from many different sources. You can put together your own uh, way of, of being spiritual, and I, I suppose to a degree it's always been that way in the United States. It is more so now, and one uh, sign of that has been in the last 15 years the popularity of a certain new age spirituality, which is very much uh, individually driven. Uh, how do you express yourself in regard to your inner life? Is it by particular forms of prayer that are not necessarily within the church context? Is it with yoga? Is it with chanting? Is it through uh, meditating uh, somewhere or another? Is it to pilgrimage? Uh, to uh, holy sites that uh, you may choose yourself. Um, it, it could be any and all of the above. That is spirituality now in America. And that, is, that does fit within that 
that 95% who claim some sort of belief in God or a higher power. Your remarks um, are largely confined to the growth of religions in the United States. What is your thinking regarding the emergence of religious organizations in the two-thirds of the world where most of the population is and where issues of poverty and underdevelopment uh, exist? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, and there is change, uh, religious change, going on in the developing world. Quite fascinating, too. If one takes the continent of Africa, there is a great deal of growth uh, among Christian organizations. Now, what's so fascinating is that many of them are indigenous. That is, they were founded uh, some point in this century or perhaps late in the last century by Africans. And many of them, those indigenous churches, are growing. Islam, too, is growing in Africa. There is a, and this, this presents its own challenge. Uh, I should say the Roman Catholic Church, too, is doing quite well in Africa. There's change also in Latin America, where uh, in the last generation there has been an effort by people within the Roman Catholic tradition to enunciate a, uh, a religious philosophy that particularly addresses the condition and needs of the poor, the so-called liberation theology, in which it is said that God has a, in quotes, preferential option for the poor, and religious life should be oriented toward the uh, spiritual and, uh, and, and, and the living conditions, too, of the poor. At the same time, there has been enormous growth in Latin America in uh, Pentecostal and uh, charismatic churches, some of them affiliated with denominations in the United States, like the Assemblies of God, some of them independent, indigenous churches. There's been tremendous growth in places like Argentina and Brazil and Central America. So too has there been growth there in the ranks of the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, I believe that uh, the Mormons have done best outside the United States, south of the Rio Grande. A year ago, the Mormons could announce that of their nearly 10 million members, uh, half of them lived overseas. Um, and, and Mormon uh, churches can be found on all continents now. There's a great deal of temple building going on uh, among Mormons. and. Uh, all over the world. I think one of the next ones to open is in Madrid. Not exactly the place that one would think. Madrid, Spain, by the way. <laughs> uh, not exactly a city that one would associate uh, with Mormonism, but lo and behold, nowadays, yes. And it is part of the growing religious diversity around the world. Mr. Niebuhr, we thank you for being with us today. We thank you for your uh, insightful commentary and uh, covering of, of news stories, your interpretation, and especially for, for your careful balance uh, in, in the way in which you write and the way in which you speak, and for drawing all of us to, to be more balanced and to, to speak with more care for, uh, with regard to movements, organizations, cultures, which we may not initially understand. We thank you for being with us and thank all of you for being with us at the Town Hall Forum. Thank you.